Welcome to RealCom's second installment in the Smart Building Bootcamp Series for 2022. I'm Chuck Nicewanger, President of NiceNets Consulting, sitting in for RealCom's Sarah Bemperid as host of today's webinar, Energy Management on the Path to Carbon Neutrality. Before we start, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. We encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We'll try to get your questions, but if we don't answer them during the webinar, we'll do our best to follow up with you once the event is concluded. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. If you're experiencing any technical issues, connectivity, sound, video quality, the best thing to do is to disconnect and click on the webinar link again. You can e also email Ian Thompson at ithompson at realcom.com for more help, but don't worry, it's all being recorded so you won't miss any of the information we're about to cover as you'll be receiving a link to the webinar recording in the next few days. The, this educational webinar is supported by gold sponsors. Code Green can help you with sustainability strategy, implementation, and reporting from the ground up. MicroShare leverages the power of IoT data to drive sustainability and ESG initiatives to solve a wide range of real-world problems for their clients. And Sky Foundry's SkySpark software helps you find what matters most and transforms vast amounts of data into actionable intelligence. We thank all these sponsors for helping us out at Realcom. Be sure to include them in your vendor selection process. Our moderator for today's webinar is Brenna Walraven. As CEO of Corporate Sustainability Strategies, she helps clients develop and execute strategies in real estate operations, resiliency, ESG, and carbon neutrality. Brenna, it's all yours. Thanks so much, Chuck. And again, another quick thank you to Realcom and our sponsors uh, for hosting such a fantastic uh, dialogue and discussion today on our path to carbon neutrality with energy management. I want to do some level setting and um, kind of set the stage for a discussion talking about the megatrends impacting real estate for the next 15 years um, and really the drivers for why there's an increased focus for decarbonization. It's really important to understand that there are both physical and transition risks and opportunities uh, that are pushing stakeholders to really focus and take more action and deal with everything from investor awareness on these topics to growing governmental focus at a local, state, federal, and even international level. Um, it's also important to understand that 98% of our building stock um, is made up of structures that already exist and 75% of them are over 20 years old um, and many require efficiency and resiliency improvements. So to maintain a, a, another level setting context point is that to maintain a healthy atmosphere, the IPCC estimated that carbon emissions must reduce, be reduced by 45% by 2030 from a 2010 level. Um, and in the US, we know that US buildings, uh, if you include both commercial and residential represent 40% of the CO2 emissions, making it a prime sector for contributing and trying to hit uh, these targets and provide a more resilient and thriving future. Um, existing building retrofits are the fastest, most profitable um, method for creating not only economic uh, development, new jobs, but it's also the path towards uh, getting to these aggressive targets. The good news is today, you're gonna to have learn about seven di several different pathways from somebody early on in the process 
with Michelle German and LBA, um, hear about somebody who's well down the path uh, with uh, Vaishali Sempat at uh, Kilroy. Um, and then we'll, we're gonna hear what's next and thinking about decarbonization um, from Sarah Neff. Uh, and then we'll also hear some tools and technology and solutions from our sponsors that are really impressive and cutting edge. Um, but it, again, we're gonna walk through the entire path. I really wanted to also provide some kind of level setting in, on competitive signals about what's happening in the marketplace. Um, and if you looked at these logos, the top uh, set of logos are investors, the middle two rows are around real estate organizations, and then the last row is around really not just large corporations, but tenants ultimately. And if we think about investors, MetLife, for example, in 2020, um, stated started their met zero program where they are taking several of their real estate portfolios and funds through uh, carbon neutrality ubs uh, announced also that they are the first financial and they were the first financial institution to officially favor sustainable investment over uh, conventional ones and then of course you know none of these uh, conversations don't include blackrock and larry fink's famous letter which is famous because he not only signaled that climate risk is investment risk um, and invariably the top issue that clients around the world would be talking to and raising with BlackRock. But it's also uh, famous because BlackRock represents uh, almost eight Tia's and Tom trillion dollars of investment capital. So there's a ripple effect. Um, when we talk about real estate organizations, um, ULI's Greenprint announced in 2020 that their members are targeting a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030 um, and carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, I also think it's important, uh, obviously, to have Kilroy, who was an early adopter, one of the first uh, in this journey. Uh, and even Stag and, and Duke Realty um, are both uh, uh, national large uh, industrial distribution warehouse uh, owner operators who both made commitments to carbon neutrality uh, in 2021 with Stag achieving operational carbon neutrality. So really big signals about the changes. And then lastly, with our uh, large corporate users, all of these folks have made a commitment to carbon neutrality, which really ties to some analysis and research that was um, conducted by the climate. Um, it's called the Growth of Climate Action and Corporate World Research to really uh, target who put this research and analysis together. The signal here is you can see that from 2005, people started working, these global Fortune 500 companies started working on COVID neutrality, but we've had a 5x increase in that trend in the last five years. So we're really starting to see an uptake of companies that are or will be by 2030 carbon neutral um, and have set carbon neutrality targets. I also think it's important for our discussion, most of us know this, but just to reinforce, when we, when we say carbon neutrality, what do we really mean? It refers to achieving net zero carbon dioxide emissions and doing that by eliminating, reducing, and then offsetting. I think reporting boundaries matter. Kilroy uh, is a perfect example of that as an early adopter focused on scope one and scope two emissions. Um, and now today, I think scope three are uh, increasingly have to be part of the equation. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Operational versus financial control. If it's operational control, you decide when a building starts and stops, how to run the equipment and how long you're running it, et cetera is a typical office building in most cases. An industrial building, building uh, conversely, is where the tenant controls when it turns off and when it turns on. So that's, again, no operational control. Those boundaries are increasingly part of this story. 
The good news is there are new best practices evolving and you're gonna hear about those today. Just briefly here, we all know uh, and have heard the word scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. When it comes to real estate, I just wanted to reinforce, you know, scope one and again, let's go back to our office building. That's when we're burning something on site and we have operational control. So that would be uh, like a, a gas fired boiler, for example, that's gonna be in your scope one uh, emission. And then if we talk about scope two, we're really talking about buying in electricity for the building. Um, and then scope three is really what tenants do and what tenants control. Uh, those are the three that you see in the red uh, boxes there. Those are the three biggest buckets. There's a lot of other things that go in there, but those are the things that are gonna be the biggest part of most people's inventory for real estate. I also wanted to kind of give a visual because I'm a visual learner myself. Here's kind of a visual way to think about a carbon neutrality pathway. It starts with getting your inventory built, allowing for uh, growth in that inventory over time as the business grows. Um, and then we really wanna focus first and foremost on those first two green boxes around operational and behavioral efficiency and how we can you know, engage with tenants and our colleagues to uh, make improvements. Uh, equipment and upgrades is what we're gonna spend most of our time talking about today, although we will include some operational aspects. But then on-site and off-site renewables are a big part of a carbon neutrality pathway. And then lastly, after we do all those other things, offsets as part of that equation. I lastly wanted to just briefly talk about the Better Building uh, Initiative who has now the Better Climate Challenge. This is from the US DOE as a slide uh, focuses on, which is focused on getting emissions of at least, uh, emission reductions of at least 50% within 10 years from when you sign up. It is really focused on scope one, scope two emissions. Uh, you can baseline back five years, which is great. So if you've been working on these issues in terms of efficiency, you're gonna kind of get credit for that in your baseline but it does not allow offsets. And the reason is they wanna focus on energy efficiency, just like we are today. Um, and lastly, it requires that you set a target, an efficiency target. They will accept um, an intensity target, but they prefer uh, an absolute target. Lastly, what do they provide? What do you get if you participate in this program? And Michelle um, with LBA is gonna tell us a little bit about her experience uh, and get more into it, but they're gonna provide a lot of technical assistance um, which is gonna be increasingly helpful and expertise, and they wanna collaborate and demonstrate best practices, which is wonderful. But in return for that, they're gonna expect some transparency and some accountability as part of that process. The, the key here is I just wanted you to be aware, we're not gonna spend any time on this, is that there are resources in the handouts that are in uh, the chat box now, so that if you're interested in this program, you can reach out to Hannah DeBilius at DOE, um, but I just wanted to make sure you had some resources. Um, and with that, I'm gonna turn uh, and introduce my uh, colleague. I guess I still stay on, sorry, trying to get these messaging down. Um, Michelle German, Director of ESG and Sustainability LBA Realty is uh, both a colleague and a friend and has been an integral member of the corporate operations team where she's focused on driving LBA's sustainability strategy, implementation and programming of energy efficiency uh, projects including programs such as clean tech, data management, LED retrofits, smart building programs, and climate risk assessments. Um, through her leadership efforts, LBA has been recognized for local, regional, national certifications and awards, including LEED, Energy Star, uh, UL's Verified Healthy Building Mark, Fitwell, and an Energy Star Partner of the Year. Michelle, looking forward to hearing from you. Welcome. 
Um, LV is a full-service real estate investment company headquartered in Irvine, California, and we currently have a, a little over 100 million square feet of office and industrial product across the United States. So um, LV has always had a strong focus in ESG, but more recently, we're looking to embark um, on the path to carbon neutrality, and we're actively learning what it looks like to take us there um, from both a cost and operational perspective. My next slide here. So um, today I'm going to be walking you through the steps that we've laid out um, to achieve carbon neutrality, which include benchmarking our GHG emissions inventory, evaluating pathways for decarbonization, making a commitment, and more importantly, executing on that commitment. All right. So first, uh, you have to benchmark. So as the saying goes, you can't manage what you don't measure, and so data management is really the foundation um, to carbon to a carbon neutral pathway. So understanding that baseline is critical to making a plan. Historically, data management was looking at energy, water, and waste, but now you really have to look at um, calculating your, your GHG emissions inventory. And so for LBA, our inventory consists of scopes one through three, which includes directly managed energy, water, and waste utility data. It includes um, indirectly managed, which is our uh, tenant, um, where our tenants are in operational control, so that's more of our industrial portfolio. Uh, that's looking at their energy, water, and waste utility data, and that's really where we're able to obtain that data. We don't always get the data from our industrial tenants. And we're looking at our refrigerants and our generators, the diesel fuel within there, our engineering vehicle fleet, and um, the GHG emissions from LBA uh, employee travel. Okay. Sorry, you guys, I'm having trouble with clicking to the next slide. So after you're benchmarking, or after you benchmark, you can start um, to assess where are you today? Now you have that insight. Um, so to support that process, it's very helpful for existing buildings to initiate an energy audit so you know where there are opportunities. Um, also, at LBA, we have um, a standard as part of our due diligence process. We obtain energy audits uh, that provides us with um, upfront efficiency projects, including the costs associated with it. And this really allows us to plan from day one where we're at um, or where, what we need to underwrite and putting these initiatives in the acquisition budget on the front end. Um, so another thing that we're looking at right now, and Brenna touched on the U.S. Department of Energy's Better Buildings um, Climate Challenge, we're part of the Low Carbon Pilot Program. And so in this program, um, we're utilizing it as a way to explore low carbon pathways over um, a, a two-year period. And so we've committed to three of our Class A office properties in hopes that by participating in this program, we're able to learn from and utilize the DOE's expertise, tools, um, and their resources, and then turn around and utilize what we've learned on these three properties um, to replicate that across the portfolio and really use what we're learning in that pilot program as a framework for the rest of our portfolio. So this also allows us to get our engineering and property management teams comfortable with the idea of looking at capital planning a little bit differently. Um, if I could just get a couple people on board um, that support this initiative, and it starts to become easier for me to get that buy-in when I go to implement it across the portfolio. So, um, so for example, we have a team right now that's currently preparing their annual action plan, their ESG action plan, and they have a chiller replacement coming up over the next year. 
And so rather than selecting our usual equipment, um, our usual equipment choices, we reached out to the DOE just to see if they have any suggestions for us on what our equipment choices should be. And so their advice to us was um, that we should be considering if it's possible to implement a chiller configuration in which some of the waste heat from the chiller is used for heating. And so using that heat off the chiller, um, we could heat our domestic hot water uh, as that's a constant load and not just seasonal. So I shared that with the engineering team and they're taking that information and looking into it further. And it really is a creative idea and a creative possible solution. And we're gonna see if that's something that we can do. And they also suggested the idea of thermal storage to manage peak cooling loads. Um, but because of the size uh, that we would need for a thermal storage system, it's just not, that wasn't a, a solution that we can um, go after. But the point here is that in them sharing examples, we're able to start gleaming what framework we should be following, what things we should be looking at, and just changing our mindset a little bit. So um, that's been really great so far. And so really quickly, I also wanted to touch on how LBA um, is implementing our efficiency project. So each year we require our property teams to do an annual ESG action plan. And so those action plans are really critical because they require the team to meet with engineers and all our stakeholders annually to focus solely on ESG initiatives. And so um, with the action plans, they also assist the team with understanding, you know, what's needed in our budget and making sure they can capital plan for that accordingly. And so finally, um, once we've evaluated these strategies, um, we really feel comfortable that carbon neutrality is attainable. You can make a commitment. Um, and so that's where LBA is now. We're getting very comfortable with the idea that in, in fact, this is attainable. And so we're really excited about this possibility. And my last slide, let's see, oh, sorry guys. So, and lastly, um, I just wanted to wrap it up on how we execute or how you can execute, but how LBA can execute on our commitment. And so you really wanna look at this slide from left to right. Um, as your pathway in this order. So Brenna touched on this a little bit, so I'm just gonna kind of do maybe a slightly deeper dive. First, you wanna look at operational and behavioral, behavioral efficiency. So for example, you're looking at things like automation, sensors and controls, and making adjustments where needed. You might wanna do an Energy Star treasure hunt. Um, there's also tenant engagement, which I think this is very critical to a carbon neutral um, pathway. But you definitely need to engage with your tenants to see how you can influence their behavior because a big part of a building's consumption comes from our tenants. And so next, if you go you know, one, one bucket over, you'll see that there's plant and equipment upgrades. And so in this area, uh, maybe you're looking at enhancing HVAC systems, adding BSCs, LED lights. Um, if you have a re-roof, you might wanna make, um, put in your scope to do a cool roof. And just an example of something LBA did as an energy efficiency project was uh, to roll out our smart building program with the RD Pulse, which included fault detection diagnostics and uh, active optimization of our HVAC systems. And so through this program, we had really great results and we were able to have a large reduction in energy consumption and still continue to do so year over year. And so the next thing you're gonna look at in, in here is your on-site renewables. And so LBA is doing this through looking at power purchase agreements. And so for example, we currently are looking at adding a 22 megawatts of solar at one of our office properties in Irvine 
and this would provide for a 35% renewable energy offset at this site, which would be huge. So um, I have my fingers crossed that we could do this project this year, but that would really take that asset um, in a great direction to hit carbon neutral. And so then lastly, if you just I'm just going to quickly look at the last two buckets. You have off-site renewables, so think things like the uh, VPPAs, virtual PPAs, and um, high-quality and verified carbon offsets and renewable energy credits are really the last steps to get you to carbon neutral. And so with that, I'm going to wrap up my presentation, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the other presentations and learning from them because these companies are already doing these great things. So thank you. Outstanding job, Michelle. Really great. Uh, a lot of insights there. Um, one question that I had for you is, you know, part of this, and you touched on it, is engagement and education. And I'm just curious if you can share with us, um, how did you kind of educate and engage not just senior management, because that's critical, of course, but also these on-site teams and engineers um, that, you know, are used to running buildings and making sure people are comfortable and there's no complaints. And now we're talking about a whole bunch of other stuff. How did you engage with them? Yeah, um, so good question. I think engagement is absolutely the key to all of this. Um, I can push the rock, but if I don't have engagement, it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, so I, I think I touched a little bit on this. LBA is really big on piloting things, um, taking a small sampling of whatever it is we're gonna do and understanding it, getting comfortable and then replicating that. And so being part of the Better Buildings Low Carbon Pilot Program is allowing us to do that. We have three properties, which means we have three property management teams and three engineering teams and all of the stakeholders that are part of those properties are hearing what we're doing, hearing us pushing or asking different questions on what we're doing. So that really helps and then the other um, engagement pieces really from I think our investors and our joint venture partners are driving you know their interest is really driving senior team engagement and to have their support from the top is really helping get the engagement across the entire company. Yeah this is great I um, appreciate you sharing that because this is really about telling people why this is important and help connecting the dots not just for senior management who uh, is starting to see this as we talked about but but also everyone down the line needs to understand why this is important. Great job, more to follow. Let me now turn to introduce uh, Vaishali Sampath, uh, who's the Director of Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability at Kilroy. Uh, she joined Kilroy in 2013 in property management, the few that are proud of the property management, uh, we love it, where she worked closely with the sustainability team to identify and implement efficiency projects and achieve building certifications. Uh, for the West LA and Santa Monica portfolio. And then in 2018, she transitioned to the sustainability side of the equation full time and is now responsible for managing environmental and building health certifications, energy, water, and waste efficiency programs, and building de decarbonization. Welcome. Look forward to hearing what you got, what's going on at Kilroy these days. All right. Thank you, Brenna. Um, before I begin, I just want to confirm that you guys can hear me all right. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, so we'll begin today with just kind of a quick company overview of who Kilroy is. Uh, so Kilroy is a commercial owner, operator, and developer of, um, of assets. We have about uh, 15 and a half million square feet of a stabilized portfolio. And we operate primarily in the West Coast, um, headquartered in Los Angeles. Majority of our assets are in California. We also have um, a growing 
sector in, uh, in Washington and also in Austin. We expanded in Austin last year. Um, Kilroy has had a longstanding commitment to sustainability. It's deeply embedded into our culture. Um, our program began in 2010 and it um, spans a broad range of, of efforts, including not just environmental, but our health and wellness programs and social and community engagement. All right. Oh. There we go. Okay. Um, so let's get dive right into why we're all here today, which is our carbon neutral operations. So Kilroy achieved carbon neutral operations of our scope one and our scope two emissions at the end of 2020. And we really did this through kind of a five prong approach. Um, the first is our energy efficiency. So this is, you know, energy on-site energy reductions. Um, this is the bread and butter of our program, something that we'll continuously be doing um, until we hopefully get to zero. Uh, and then next is um, on-site renewables. So currently about 3% of our energy usage um, is generated from uh, on-site renewables. We are continuously um, looking for opportunities to install solar into our existing assets. And all of our developments are required to go through a feasibility study as well for on-site solar. We do find that there is a lot more barriers um, that we face with our stabilized, um, with our existing buildings, um, just because of the asset types that we have. Um, they, you know, we don't have necessarily have the footprint or, you know, the space to do it, or it's just not, you know, economically viable for us to do that. Um, but we do continue to, to, to look for opportunities. Um, and next is our offsite renewables. Um, so we have entered into agreement to, um, to uh, develop a solar array in Texas that will offset the remaining um, energy usage. Um, and that is currently still in development. Um, and so until, until that gets completed, we'll be offsetting our um, renewable or offsetting our energy usage with, uh, with RECs. These are Greeny certified high impact RECs high impact RECs and our carbon offsets that will um, offset our uh, gas usage. Oops. Sorry, having a little trouble here. All right, so wanna talk a little bit more about our energy management and our on-site uh, uh, on energy reduction. So first and foremost, we, you know, we've been collecting our data since 2010 and this is of, of uh, all directly managed and indirectly managed uh, energy usage. So this is tenant and landlord. Um, and we use this uh, data to ca calculate our scope one, two, and three emissions. And we report on all three emissions in our annual sustainability report and in our various investors disclosures like GRES. Um, so even though our carbon neutral um, operations commitment is only spans to scope one and scope two, um, we think it's important to track our scope three because we know that scope three emissions really makes up the bulk of, of our emissions and we need to have a plan in place to, um, to start reducing that in the future as well. Um, we have our kind of our short-term target of reducing our on-site energy usage by about 20% from 2015 levels by 2025. Um, we did have an original target of 2020, but you know, the pandemic kind of throwing things um, off uh, in the loop and, and, and kind of skewing our uh, reductions, we did push this out to 2025. And so we have, um, we have what's a, a standalone sustainability budget. And this uh, budget allows us to implement various energy efficiency projects portfolio wide. 
Um, the, the sustainability budget was created in response to some of the issues we were facing with trying to implement sustainability projects in our regular capital budgets and seeing those projects being cut. Um, what's really interesting uh, that we're seeing now is that we're seeing that, that sustainability is now actually being reprioritized in our regular kind of uh, capital, capital budgets that our property management teams um, manage. And so it kind of frees up our own sustainability budget to, uh, to invest in more um, pilot programs and cutting edge technologies and things like that. And we do so through our innovation lab, which I'll get into in just a few minutes. Um, so just wanted to quickly kind of give you a little tour of our, um, some, some of our, you know, projects and our um, programs that help us reduce our energy usage. Um, so we do things like lighting retrofits. That's pretty low-hanging fruit. The, you know, ROI is pretty quick with those. Um, so we do that. You know, we get a, a account across the portfolio and um, roll out um, projects kind of annually and quarterly. Um, and then I've already told you about the solar that we invest in on-site solar. We also have things like window film, um, you know, liquid window films that uh, we have found has been really um, really effective, um, and so that we're rolling, we're currently kind of trying to scale that up through our portfolio. We do have battery storage in about nine of our projects, um, and we do, you know, we are constantly conducting uh, retro commissioning and auditing of our buildings. Um, we also invest in more capital intensive uh, projects in HVAC, you know, HVAC upgrades, BFDs, motors, that's happening annually. And we are also committed to um, all electrification. So we have about 90% of our portfolio is um, all electric and all of our new development um, it will be uh, all electric corn shell. All right, so let's get into the Innovation Lab. So the Innovation Lab was established in 20, 2017. Um, it helps us to formalize the process of implementing sustainability projects and provides credibility to, to, uh, to successful technologies. And we do this through um, a built-in measurement and verification platform. So when we invest into these, um, these technologies, these kind of emerging technologies, they do, we do have a criteria that they have to meet a three-year ROI or less. And so the measurement and verification platform helps us to ensure that we're actually meeting that ROI, or if we're not, then, you know, it tells us that as well. Um, we source our projects through various technology partners. So um, this is really key for us. We, we, uh, we participate in different accelerator um, events, and we partner with accelerator groups, and they help us to sort of vet um, the technologies that we're looking for that meet um, Kilroy's criteria and help us to mitigate our risks because we do need to be accountable for the money that we're spending and making sure that we're investing in the technologies that, um, that we find will be scalable for us and offer scalable solutions. All right, so getting more into the measurement and verification, this is where we talk a little bit more about our data analytics and our smart building um, uh, programs. And so we have deployed um, this data analytics software program across 21 assets and 30, 30 buildings. Um, so it comes out to about 140 um, meters. And so basically when, when we um, implement a program, we bring in the data analytics uh, software into it from the beginning and they start to measure it as soon as it becomes operating, as soon as it's implemented. 
um, and then they can give us a, a, a report on it at the end of the of, at the end of the three years. Or actually, they do it annually, and then we get a final report at the end of the three years. Um, and so, what we found through this um, this particular software is that we're saving about twenty six thousand dollars a year um, on average per building in these particular in these thirty buildings. And this is just a snapshot of that uh, of the pro of the platform. So I'm. <laughs> Full disclosure, not fully versed on, you know, being able to read this. This is where our engineers really come in. But I do know that the um, platform does give you um, ongoing continuous monitoring of your energy usage at a, every at a 15 minute interval. And it allows you to um, compare your usage to prior years. So you can see how you're performing after you've implemented these, these uh, projects. You can see if they're actually really working, if you're actually seeing the savings that you had expected to see. And uh, moving on beyond that, so we use um, our data analytics platforms for more than just our projects. We do it for ongoing. Our engineers use it for kind of ongoing monitoring and finding ways to uh, tweak their operations and, and shave their kind of um, their shave, shave their loads during peak demand times. Um, and they do this through submetering. So this is another example of um, a platform that we deployed at our uh, at our campus at Kilroy uh, Center Del Mar in San Diego. So we submeted our spaces, and the the platform collects that data on a real time basis at a 15 minute interval. And it is integrated across electricity, gas, water, and waste streams. And so the biggest takeaway from this, what we found is that, you know, it really empowers our engineers to, um, to kind of take ownership of their buildings, to find, continuously find ways to improve their buildings. I talk to them all the time and they're always like really excited to talk about some of the savings that they found and in, in, in shedding their peak loads and things like that. Um, what we're also seeing is that tenants are requesting this. So this is really important for them. Um, they want to know what what they're doing so that they can or how they're performing so that they can meet their reporting obligations and and achieve their sustainability goals as well. And so we help them with that. We actually have a tenant right now who um, who has asked to for us to submit to their space and they want to actually integrate all their data into one platform um, across all of their uh, properties. So that's something that we're helping them right now. So um, we found that our investments in, in you know, these smart building uh, analytics and these programs has been, has paid off for us. And we're really excited to see how uh, it, you know, how it pans out in the future. So thank you. Fantastic, really a lot of great stuff going on. Um, knowing that you cannot stay to the bitter end for questions, I'm gonna sneak in a couple. Um, one that my first is, you know, this concept of having a corporate level budget instead of a individual property budget for these kinds of projects and investments, which kind of ties with your innovation lab. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, how did that get started? Does it vary every year? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, yeah, we have kind of this this corporate level sort of blank budget that we're given. And then we as a team work with our various property groups to determine what we wanna pay, what we wanna invest in that year and where we wanna um, invest our funds. And so I think it would be the first thing I should point out is that our, our, our budget um, funds three different things, efficiency projects that mean ROI of three years or less, building certifications and EV charging stations. And so, um, you know, we meet with our property teams every year. We have an annual kick, uh, sustainability kickoff call. I'm doing them right now. And that helps us to 
sort of start the conversation of what do, what do we need to invest in this year? Who's who really needs to see some more improvements? Who's kind of slipping? Those kinds of things, and then we create our budget based on that. And of course, certifications that you know research things like that. And EV charging stations. Everybody needs EV charging stations now. So yeah. yeah. Really fantastic process. Uh, that's helpful to understand. I think that is a best practice that um, people should really take note of. I wanted to also take a question from the panelists to ask you is they were, you know, uh, from James Lee, which was you show, you know, normalized energy consumption dropping year on year. And he was kind of asking, can you explain the factors uh, do you normalize against? Kind of what are your normalization factors? Yeah, I mean, we typically do like for like buildings um, with the square footage. Um, I th <laughs> it's actually a great question right now because the last couple of years, years has yeah, been, so. been a bit strange. So I think we're looking into how do we normalize with occupancy. Um, so we haven't quite figured that part out yet. I don't think any of us had anticipated in being in this situation for so long, or maybe you did. Um, so, but currently it's been um, through square footage and, and yeah, we need to see how we can figure out what the last couple of years have looked like in reality based on the, the efficiency projects we've invested in. Well, especially as you say, the last two years have been walking with occupancy and COVID and, and buildings had to stay running, but we just didn't have the, the same load. So helpful. Um, also got another question from Dylan um, Gasparic. Um, and he's saying, his question was, how is Kilroy thinking about decarbonizations of its building as it relates to things like gas appliances and kind of the burning of stuff, electric, enabling electric vehicles, right? So you have some increases on the, on the electricity side, but we still have a fair amount of gas going on. So how are you guys thinking about um, yeah. those effects? Yeah, first of all, hi, Dylan. I know him from way back. So uh, thank, you for, thank you for your question. Um, so yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, if you want to get to net zero and decarbonization, you have to start thinking about your gas gas lines. And so, you know, as I mentioned, um, we are committed to our for our development to being all electric foreign shell. We're still making caveats for our retail tenants who have their restaurants and want to have a gas line. But until then, um, you know, we are really just focused on how do we make our boilers more efficient. Um, and it's, it's unfortunately, the economics are not there for taking out gas lines. Um, sure. That's something that I think we're all going to have to do in the future, especially in California, where, yeah. you know, there's rapid decarbonization, um, you know, goals that the state has. Um, but right now, it's really just about how do we make our boilers more efficient and how do we, awesome. and, and, you know, yeah. Thanks so much. Great update. Yeah. Appreciate it greatly. Um, and, you know, keep leading the way. We, we look to uh, your expertise uh, as we go along. So thanks, Michelle. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you so much. Start. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Let me now turn to uh, another friend and colleague, uh, Sarah Knapp, who is head of ESG for uh, Lend-Lease in the Americas. And before joining Lend-Lease in 2001, she took over Kilroy Realties uh, from taking them from having no sustainability program to being ranked number one uh, public real estate company across all asset classes on sustainability in the Americas for GRES, a huge accomplishment. She actually serves on the board of the Clean Project Advisory Board, uh, the GBCI Board of Directors, and the Green Alternatives Board of Directors. With that, let me turn it over to Sarah. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? 
I'm hoping people can hear me. Yes. Me... Yeah, we okay. got you. Go ahead. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, everybody. So um, thank you so much for these um, fantastic presentations. Uh, it's been so fun just to hear how everybody's approaching this. So what I'm going to do in my talk is talk a little bit about how we're, we're doing um, a lot of the same things you've been hearing about, how we're sort of managing energy um, in a smart way in our operating portfolio. And then I'm going to get into um, sort of other ways we're using sort of smart technologies to think about uh, things like scope three emissions, embodied carbon, you know, uh, um, energy efficient design of buildings, that kind of thing. So that's what we're going to get into. So I want to um, take a sec to talk about Lendlease and we're an unusual company. Um, we, uh, are, we, we are builders of buildings, so we do um, straight construction management work. We do have um, an investment and development platform where, you know, we raise the funds, we go find the land, we build the project and then operate it. Um, we also are a large operator of military housing, about 18 military communities and 40,000 homes. Um, and so we are sort of dealing with how to be smart about um, all of our energy emissions and carbon and whatnot across all of that. So um, I want to just say that we are really ambitious um, in terms of uh, how we feel about our sustainability targets. So we are what, are, what is called a 1.5 a degree aligned company. Um, that means that we want our business operations aligned with a world that does not warm by more than 1.5 degrees. Um, to do that, um, we want to get to net zero uh, carbon scopes one and two by 2025. That is what Kilroy achieved in 2020. Um, and then we also want to get to absolute zero across every single scope, scopes one, two, and three. And the absolute means no offsets by 2040. That means all of our construction materials. It means you know, or all of our flights, it means everything about our operations has to have no carbon emissions associated with it by the year 2045. Those are the most ambitious uh, sustainability goals in real estate globally, as far as I know. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about how we're, we're getting from here to there. Um, so this is what we're going to, what we're up to in operation. Um, we, we work with a company called Enertiv. Um, and what I want to say about this is that um, it really depends on the building. Um, I have found that there's a there's as much as we would love to scale solutions across our entire portfolios buildings are different there's a different there's they have different levels of complexities within their systems they have different levels of appetite for smart building uh work by their engineers utilities are different the meters are set up different all of that all of that plays in so this is a complicated building this is it's four buildings. We built all four. We sold two, but we retained an amenity space. And one of the ones that we sold, we have to meter that. And there's just, you know, wiring everywhere. Um, and so this needed a really sophisticated platform, which we have with Enertiv, where we are metering every single piece of equipment and seeing how that rolls up. And that's really important. We have a great engineer there. We have a couple other buildings that are much more simple, much fewer meters, fewer sort of levers to play with. And um, this is not a solution that we like we need to scale everywhere it really depends on you know right sizing it for for the engineer and for the building so as much as it's so it seems so great to be able to do everything on a portfolio level i think in some level of customization is really important to get to success um so that's also all i want to say about operations i'm going to talk a little bit about how we do this in construction um, so we do a lot of BIM modeling to figure out how much energy we want our projects to be using. So this is modeling for future energy system, systems. Um, so we, uh, so what you see in this chart is after a whole lot of modeling, we know um, what every single sort of uh, future user of energy is going to do if we were in a baseline model. And then if we wanted to make that a lot more efficient, here's where we're going to get to. And that's why we're able to say 
you know, we're getting to 22% reduced energy from the design. So we, we don't just start our smart building work once we've operated the building. We're really baking the concept of data and iteration and, and looking at an analysis and getting really granular about it from conceptual design on. Um, once we have, and then, so that's from design, now in construction. Um, so we don't just say, oh, oops, construction emissions don't matter. Um, we are builders and we, we build our own projects as well as projects for others. And we track all of that data. Now, construction data gets a little less granular. We're not talking, you know, installed BMS. So what are we tracking during construction? energy, water, um, we're tracking waste, we're tracking diesel, what fuels, how are things are coming, why is this important? Well, for me, uh, my construction uh, uh, business is, is the largest user of what we call scope one emissions, which is fuels. We're, you know, we're curing concrete in cold climates, Chicago, Boston, New York, during winter time, you know, that's all done with, with kerosene, with coke and with natural gas. It's, it's, it's very intensive and we're trying to figure out ways to do that. Uh, to, to reduce those impacts. How are we doing that through data? So for example, this data shows us, okay, if we can start maybe a curing process when the weather's a little warmer, we have major savings later on. So we collect all of our data and really analyze it. Um, and that looks something like this. And here's what we're doing with it. One of the things I wanna say about data is data doesn't do it, you any good. A building isn't smart if nobody's looking at it, right? And so what we're doing now is we are looking at all of our, our construction data, going back to those site superintendents, going back to those project managers and saying, hey, you're using uh, a little more energy than we would we, than we would think you would be using for this time of year and what you're doing. Can we talk about you know what's going on? You know we're doing these monthly check-ins with all of our construction teams on energy, on water, on waste um, to really engage with them and say you know can we make your operations more efficient? What are some opportunities? You know this this energy pattern indicates that you might not have put the occupancy sensors on your temporary lighting that's an opportunity, can we you know, get that ha happening? It's in the contract anyway, let's enforce that with the subcontractor. Um, so the data really helps us, but only if it has that level of engagement, which I think is really, really critical. You can't just hand people a dashboard. Somebody on my team has to look at this, you know, sort of distill it and then have an engagement with the folks that have the decision-making power. Um, but uh, here's, so that's all energy. So that's energy during operations, during design, during construction. I now want to talk a little bit about how we're engaging on a smart building level um, uh, beyond energy. Um, and this is what that looks like, and this will be the end of my presentation. So we, um, you've been hearing a lot, uh, a bit about this throughout this presentation, but this is um, how we are approaching embodied carbon. Um, and so embodied carbon is the carbon associated, otherwise known as your upfront carbon. It's the carbon associated with um, your uh, building materials. So for those of you who are engaged in development, um, it is the carbon, but this works for tenant improvements as well. It's the carbon of the materials themselves. For a new building, um, for the first 30 years of that building's existence, most of the carbon emissions are associated with the materials. I um, mean, we are able to um, do a really cool iterative process where we, we know when we're going to start construction. We are able to do research in the market to see what materials will be available, what we think will be available. So sort of there's a baseline, there's what we're pretty sure is going to be available in a moderate scenario, and what we hope might be available in a stretch scenario. We're then able to model the full embodied carbon of the building a couple years in advance. Um, and then choose the structural design of that building to minimize the embodied carbon 
when we're doing the structural design now. So it's, it's pretty cutting edge stuff. It's really exciting. So for example, as the result of this analysis, we decided to go with a CLT or a cross laminated timber uh, building because uh, for this particular project, because we felt that even in the moderate scenario, we would have a lot of savings and obviously the stretch scenario would be really great. Um, and so this is how we're sort of using iterative data heavy smart building processes to influence how we're designing buildings as well. So that is my uh, presentation and I will uh, turn it back to, uh, to Brenna. Thank you, God, fantastic so much. I mean, I could spend hours on this. This is really good stuff. Just quickly, I wanted to ask before, and we really uh, appreciate you taking the time to share some of the details you guys are doing. Can you tell me a little bit more about, just briefly about measurement tools? Because Embedded Carmen feels like the new frontier in all these discussions yeah. as you touched on. What are some of the tools that you guys have used to kind of do these analyses and comparisons? Yeah, absolutely. So the for for embodied carbon, these are tools that we've sort of developed internally, um, but they're high level. So they're sort of, for those of you who work in this space, they're sort of on the level of a tally or a one-click LCA. And then the idea is, and we're new to this, so this is like within the last year, the idea is then we're going to use uh, tools in the market like EC3, the Embodied Carbon in Construction Calculator, um, to then to then have our our partners, our subcontractors, the concrete suppliers, the steel suppliers, whatever, to then provide us our data through EC3, which will then integrate into our tool. So that's the overall plan. So right now we're doing this work internally, and the reason we're doing that is because we uh, we're holding ourselves to a high standard. Want to use our own projects as a baseline. So here's what we have been able to achieve on other projects, and here's how we want to get it better, which is why we use our own tool. Fantastic. Thanks again, Sarah. Appreciate it. Look forward to a couple more questions. Let me now um, uh, turn to, uh, let's make sure I get this uh, right. We have a, uh, a video and message from uh, MicroShare. So if we could tee that up, Ian. Hey, Melvin. Busy office today. Ah, air quality, check. Oh, oh, gonna need another coffee. Too many people in there, gonna have to wait. Gotta report the towels are out. Wow, you guys are on it. Ah, an open field for coffee. This place could use cleaning. We gotta stop meeting like this. Fantastic, great. Uh, let me uh, welcome and uh, Thank again, John, excuse me, Mike uh, Moran for supporting our event today. Um, uh, Mike Moran is the CMO and Director of Risk and Sustainability for MicroShare. Um, MicroShare, uh, and he oversees MicroShare's ESG practice, as well as communications and thought leadership um, strategy. He's also a writer and a broadcaster. 
uh, on sustainability as well as many other topics. And he's also a former principal and chief uh, US macro analyst for uh, at a global risk consultancy known as Control Risk. Um, welcome again, Mike, thanks for the support. Uh, look forward to hearing uh, your presentation. Well, thanks very much, um, Rena. And as you see, that's our CEO who was dashing through the headquarters. He's, he's a good sport. Um, Go ahead and turn on your camera. Let me just give you that quick heads up. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, camera on. How's that? <laughs> so, as I said, that was our CEO dashing through the uh, headquarters in Philadelphia. He's a good sport and, and a bit of a ham. Um, so, as you saw, I mean, one of the things we do, um, other than energy monitoring, which we have a, a pretty um, robust solution for, is the, the larger aspects of ESG, which is such a, uh, a broad term these days. And, you know, I think before the pandemic, ESG and sustainability there was a kind of it was a straw man for for energy and environmental carbon footprint i think the pandemic has really in kind of reinforced the s in esg the social aspects which um are much harder to collect data for and some of the things you saw in that video were the data points that we collect on top of the energy uh, ingestion of utility bills and electricity monitoring which give you um something to hang your hat on when you're revealing and releasing data on your social um, ESG performance as well. So I'm gonna try to race through this deck because some of it was covered quite well by Brenna at the top. Um, you know, there's three major drivers, market demand, climate risk uh, is obviously a millennial, uh, you know, issue that you, you'll get from everywhere from your investors to, to staff that you're trying to retain. Um, you're also seeing regulatory action now in the EU and the SEC is chewing on these things. And of course, in the post-pandemic world, we've had a real reset about um, the labor management relationship and that it plays very real uh, into the way that we look at performance of buildings and the health within buildings and the carbon footprint of a given company or, or portfolio of buildings. So, ESG metrics, well, you'll see this, of course, because we're going to share the um, this slide deck, but the things they're trying to measure are varied. Um, in many ways, defining ESG is, is kind of a, a moving target. We have, in our practice, an IoT approach to ESG in which many of these things are um, actually possible to derive from IoT sensors and our platform a real um, metric that is empirical. And that's a tough one because one of the things that's happening in the world is whether it's your carbon footprint, your 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 plan to decarbonize, there's accusations of greenwashing, as it's called, which is essentially when you hand your marketing department the job of reporting on your ESG and sustainability initiatives. Um, having that um, data in there to hang your hat on is extremely important from a legal standpoint, regulatory standpoint, but in terms of investor relations, and also your reputation. Um, what we've found is that many of the core elements of ESG can be measured uh, with empirical data, data, whether it's the electricity monitoring, gas, water consumption data that we're, we've been talking about here. It also applies to water and wastewater. Um, all of that correlates really closely with occupancy. Occupancy data correlated with these things can tell you sometimes whether um, to shut down heat and, and uh, gas supply in an area when they're not occupied, but it can also help you understand why 
a room that is occupied is being heating up and get you're getting complaints similarly with the social aspects of it having that kind of data to talk about the duty of care to talk about the way the transparency that exists within the organization can be very vital um that's it for the slideshow i'm, I'm trying to keep this really succinct you were brilliant but, but Thank I, you. I got like a 30 seconds to go. <laughs> you know what, but, Mike, thank you so much. But very cool stuff, very interesting, great video to kind of give you an overview of the platform. But one quick question that I had for you is really about the social component. And we talked about engagement a little bit a couple times here in our, our discussions. Is, and it seems to be the most susceptible to kind of greenwashing. Um, and when you start thinking about labor rights and occupant health and safety and the environmental soundness, soundness of environmentals uh, of the interior spaces you know is there a way to back these up these claims with empirical data in the work that you yeah. guys do what you provide yeah, yeah absolutely and i think the, the kinds of um the time kinds of the things you can deploy to do something like that um are, are things like occupancy as i mentioned indoor air quality monitoring humidity and temperature when you when you submeter for those uh factors that actually optimizes the environment and it will retard the spread of viral infections, which is obviously a very big issue right now. Um, density can be measured. Um, cleaning and the efficiency of cleaning can be measured both in terms of having data drive what is cleaned on a given basis so that there's a visible treatment of places that are being used high in a high volume way, but also it retards the spread of chemicals that are necessary. The, the traditional way of cleaning, of course, is like like Patton took land in France and Germany, you know, you see a, a territory and you clean every inch of it every day. That's not the way things should be cleaned now. And um, there is data now to drive that type of a change, which is a very reassuring thing for occupancy when they see that the cafeteria that's been heavy, heavily used is being cleaned after use, not at the end of the day. 100%, I think it's really um, important because of the human uh, health impacts, you know, as you say, and and being more, again, analytical about that and really measuring and monitoring what that looks like, not just, you know, saying that it is, but tracking it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it greatly. Uh, let's now uh, move to a, um, I want to introduce uh, an introduction video for Sky Foundry. And I'm going to switch that over. SkySpark is an analytics platform that automatically analyzes data from automation systems, meters, sensors, and other smart devices in order to identify issues, faults, trends, correlations, and opportunities for operational improvements and cost reduction. SkySpark works with data of all types, whether it be live data from automation systems, smart meters, web services, or historical data from CSV files and databases. SkySpark can also be used in a wide variety of applications, including energy and resource management and reporting, monitoring-based commissioning, equipment fault detection, energy analysis, load profiling, facility benchmarking, and asset performance tracking. Visit skyfoundry.com today and start finding what matters. Brenna, I think you're on mute, possibly. Yeah, Brenna's on mute. Do that. I've been nailing it all day. Sorry, John. Let me introduce John Petsy, principal of Sky Foundry. Um, John has over 35 years of experience in building automation 
energy management and M2M, having served in senior level positions for manufacturers of both hardware and software products. And then at Sky Foundry, he helps owners take advantage of advanced operational analytics to create a truly intelligent and also efficient buildings. John, take it away. All right, thanks so much, Bruna. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to support um, these educational programs on this important topic. Um, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about the really cross-cutting role that data and analytics has in achieving energy management and carbon neutrality. Um, you know, we have data from all different types of systems now. It, uh, the, in fact, you could say there's an explosion of devices and systems that produce data. So from meter data, equipment data, uh, data coming from web services, et cetera. It's not one thing, which presents a, a actually a, a significant challenge. The data comes in different formats uh, over different methods, et cetera. So we need to be able to synthesize all that data. But the importance uh, can't really be overstated because Data is fundamental to everything we need to do to address these sustainability goals, whether it's data on occupancy, data on energy, airflow, IEQ, again, coming from different systems. And when we have data from all these different systems, we need tools. Human beings aren't good with reams and reams of raw data. And, and that's what analytics is about, uh, you know, a term that um, really kind of is a, is a large uh, term, but it's really about how do we generate value from data? How do we transform the data from different systems to perhaps calculate our performance metrics so they can be compared against benchmarks or baselines? How do we detect patterns that represent deviations or anomalies or faults? You know, for example, if we've set a baseline, we shouldn't have to manually track results to say, hey, your building or your space is going outside of our goal range, right? Software does that for us automatically. And that's important if we want to scale this. In order to scale this type of efficiency across the built environment, there's simply, it's not going to be possible for people to be sitting there watching all of these trends all the time. Analytics automates that process, right? You know, when we talk to organizations about getting started with this and getting started with data and analytics, we really like to point out that this is a journey. It's not a one-time thing, install it, forget it. And, and I like to make, you know, and, and because ROI is so important, I like to make um, this analogy, right? Uh, the analogy of Lewis and Clark, right? They did not know what they were going to find on that journey, but there was enough belief in the potential value to get the information to go on the journey. Clearly, when we want to perform ECMs with capital investments, we need to be able to calculate the ROI. But the leading step to that is understanding the data so that we can identify the potential values, the potential areas and issues. And this is, uh, we found a, an important point because so many of the things that are done in buildings can be evaluated on a very capital ROI uh, model, but to get into working with data, you, you don't necessarily know immediately what value will I get by, for example, a use of, uh, I'll show you two quick examples of the use of data. You know, Converting energy data to greenhouse gas performance. Increasingly, that's being required, it's being desired, but can you attach an immediate ROI to that? I'm gonna take all my meter data and now I'm going to know the greenhouse gas equivalents. That's information to help feed the next steps organizations uh, will proceed with to improve their performance and achieve carbon neutrality. neutrality. So, 
we often see that there's it's a really important point that data has to be data and analytics has to be considered different as organizations start on that journey and on the topic of the journey you know a lot of discussion today and i see some great questions asking the these property management and developer firms how they're implementing this right and you know we have some great case studies this one i think was especially interesting because it tracks the journey for a major organization over four years how they started how they started small how they got proof how they got results how they got return on investment and then moved through an entire multi-year plan to utilize data to improve their operations their efficiency and to drive to their carbon neutrality goals so with that Brent, i'll turn it back to you uh, thanks again for the opportunity to support this educational effort. Yeah, great job. It's so true. We don't necessarily know what we're going to find in some of these journeys, but we got to believe in the value proposition to get there. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges around utilizing energy, energy data to track greenhouse gas emission performance? Yeah, I think clearly the biggest challenge, and it's been alluded to a little bit today, is getting the data. It, it's in different places, it comes in different formats, it comes in yeah. different levels of completeness, accuracy, reliability. And oftentimes I find that when, um, you know, when uh, the C-suite brings the IT department in, they have an expectation that the data from these operational systems is as easy and consistent as the data they deal with on the business Financial side. data, yeah. And it's not, right? And that can be a real shock uh, it creates a barrier. It is simply a fact of the reality of the you know, existing built environment. There's lots of standards and techniques that are going forward so new buildings won't have as much of a barrier. But that needs to be understood as part of the scope so that you actually plan for what's the easiest data to get that will generate initial value so that we can make this plan pay off, show results, and have a quick ROI. 100%. Well said. Uh, data is the hardest. It's ugly. It's dirty, as I like to tell clients all the time. But, you know, once you get that dial, that's where you get real insights. Thanks again, John. Appreciate it. Thank Let you. me now turn to tee up uh, again, another colleague and friend, Chris Caton, who is the Senior Director of Strategic Growth for Code Green Solutions. Chris has more than 18 years experience in sustainability consulting architecture and development in both New York City and overseas. He has vast expertise in creating and implementing sustainability initiatives for more than 300 million square feet of commercial property around the U.S. Chris, let's get it going. Hey, Brenna, thank you so much. Um, can you hear me? I guess everyone has to ask. That's the uh, first question. Hoping people can hear me or else someone will yell at me. Um, well, thank you again. Uh, it's really great to be part of these uh, RealCom educational webinars um, and Brenna hosting these. It's, it's fantastic to hear what everybody is doing. Really been some great ideas coming across from really some leading firms. So I don't want to take a lot of, too much time on this. I really would like to get into some discussion, but uh, since I didn't have any fancy uh, video, uh, get a few minutes just about who Code Green is. We are energy and sustainability consultants. We are based in New York City. We're about 60 staff now working with the commercial real estate industry on energy efficiency, sustainability, and as of, uh, say, the last few years, ESG and, and net zero. We work with about 600 million square feet of property around the U.S., about 165 billion in assets. 
and still working at the asset level in addition to the strategic level, still performing certifications like LEED, uh, WELL, and other certifications at the asset level. And we are you know, proud members of many of the organizations and really do contribute to all of the organizations that really shape the landscape that commercial real estate needs to navigate with regards to ESG, uh, a couple of logos on the right there that I won't run through. But today I wanted to know we've, we've had a number of deep dives into certain programs and some really great discussion of certain types of solutions. Some of this may be a bit of background, but I think it's also useful for folks looking at this in the recorded and being able to see these decks later. As many of you know, uh, buildings are 40% of global emissions, but in large cities where a lot of our clients' buildings are, they're 70% of emissions. So one of the drivers that we see are understanding both at the city level uh, how buildings are going to contribute to that net zero target that cities have as a whole. Um, we, we've been through this pathway, and there are a few different ways to uh, depict this, these steps of uh, essentially uh, targeting net zero. But I think one, one thing that came up a few times is this question of the items below. What I've listed here is these additional components. I think, um, as Brenna alluded to, kind of the next frontier are some of these other uh, areas and criteria for what are typically considered scope three emissions, understanding how these will factor in to both the baselining of uh, uh, carbon emissions for real estate companies and the targets that they're setting. So transportation, fugitive emissions, embedded carbon, as, as Sarah spoke quite eloquently about, and then historical emissions. There are some firms now who are looking back uh, words to understand what their emissions are uh, historically, not just from today. I did want to put some of these down. What we what we do at Code Green is work with large portfolios to understand their net zero goals, drivers, ambitions. Understand how to align with standards. As you many as many of you know, um, one of the requirements in real estate, of course, is to be able to benchmark yourself against the standards, so that if you're speaking to investors, you're speaking to stakeholders they know what language you're speaking and they can put you on a level playing field with the rest of the industry. So we do surveys to make sure we understand all of these potential definitions of net zero. I would say there are too many at this point. I'm not gonna run through all of these. These are just a few of them, but it does start to bring up the challenge uh, when uh, uh, property owners and, and large portfolio owners and even investment managers start to even say the term net zero in real, excuse me, in real estate, what are they referring to? And then at the asset level, again, there's no real definitive uh, certification or criteria for net zero uh, in an individual asset, which also is driving some confusion when developers, owners, operators, uh, purchasers are talking about net zero. I do want to put these uh, great maps up. IMT, the Institute for Market Transformation, has a great website on some of these requirements and plans uh, that cities have. <clears throat> for years, they've been tracking energy benchmarking regulations, which is kind of the first step of regulations that go governments put onto building owners. This next step is performance standards. So instead of just publishing information year over year to the city, these cities and states listed here, and I believe this map will grow exponentially, are actually putting performance requirements on individual buildings. So buildings in these jurisdictions will have to hit a certain carbon emissions or energy efficiency by as soon as 2025 or pay drastic fines. So it's one of the one of the pressures we see. 
I will not run through these details, but I did include two um, examples here of New York City and Boston as reference, just to understand just how stringent this is. And in the context of costs that are being uh, allocated to decarbonization, New York City and Boston have fines that are in the $260 plus per metric ton uh, for exceeding those limits. So you'll see uh, that this is much higher than, say, the, the cost of a carbon offset in any other regulated market. So it is really a huge driver uh, as buildings uh, as, as buildings are trading and as buildings are being built and operated in these markets, and we only see more of that to come. So a few slides in terms of how we look at carbon reductions. The idea for us is really to make sure we educate our clients as to how carbon reduction activities factor into really every decision that happens that happens at a building. It's not just about your boiler. It's literally everything from tenant fit outs to end of use life upgrades, end of life upgrades, even cosmetic upgrades. If you're gonna do a lobby, what does that lobby's uh, renovation mean for your energy efficiency, for your carbon footprint? Uh, renewable energy is very clearly in this wheelhouse, but looking at your controls, looking at energy storage, it really does require evaluating every major decision that happens at a building uh, in the context of carbon. And then just, uh, again, some information here that, that many have alluded to, the challenge, and again, with most of our clients in uh, either gross net or you know, gross lease or triple net lease buildings, tenants constitute a huge percentage of the carbon footprint that uh, uh, the annual energy use and carbon footprint of a building, which means they just have to be part of the solution and we help a lot of our clients drive engagement and understanding leveraging tools similar to some of that we've seen today to identify that energy use both at the base building level and at the tenant level in order to be able to pinpoint uh, excess usage, especially in a mandated city like New York City. We're working with our landlord tenants to literally look at the carbon uh, GHG per square foot of every single submeter tenant and then going doing directed engagement with them to understand why is this tenant using twice as much energy and carbon as another one of the same size? And then the last piece is just something I like to show in terms of how we think about these reductions. <clears throat> these reductions are drastic. This is not 10 or 20% savings that you might get from an energy audit. Many of these buildings, many of these mandates, many of these goals at the portfolio level call for 40, 50, sometimes 80% reductions. And there are components of each of these sectors, both base building, and tenant that need to be tackled, but they each have different opportunities for savings, each have different timelines. So the way we work with our clients is really to build a 10-year roadmap that says, this is when every one of these slivers can be attacked. It can't all be attacked overnight. Building budgets don't work that way. Building teams don't work that way. Tenants have existing leases that you need to run through uh, and you'll need to get to renewal. So we understand it's a very long-term process to get to net zero. And we really, like I said, chip away at these uh, each of these pieces incrementally as we work towards those long-term goals. So that's it for me. I'm really excited to have a conversation here with the group and uh, thank you again. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Well done and thanks uh, for keeping us on track. Um, actually very interesting that you mentioned the building performance um, as the Biden-Harris administration actually just launched a coalition of states and local governments to actually strengthen those building performance standards and there's over 33 states who have already signed on. So just to your point, these are not, they're coming more full, full there, full there. Um, so good to reference. Thank you. Great presentation, um, Chris. Tell me real quick, how, 
how real estate companies net zeros plans and strategies changed from your perspective in the last 12 months? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think it, it's interesting from we've been working with buildings about, you know, regarding sustainability for, say, 15 years now, you know, similar to what you've been doing. And we've seen in the last 12 months just this just turning it up to 11, essentially, when it comes to understanding how to target uh, net zero, where it used to be. Let's do things with a simple payback. Let's do the things that have an immediate ROI. We have many clients now where we've had to kind of redesign our, our energy auditing and net zero planning process. Essentially, every one of our clients now says, I need three scenarios. I need the, what if it has to be net zero in two years? Uh, or what if it has to be net zero in 10 years? And then something in between. So we've now, you know, when everyone used to be saying, um, you know, let's just replace things at end of useful life. Let's create this longer term plan. Now they're saying, all right, we have investors, whether or not it's a local jurisdiction or it's, or it's other stakeholders that say, we need a plan. We need to have it happen now within the next five years. Um, and if we don't get to everything in our hold period, we need to be able to package up that, that solution, that net zero roadmap and sell it along with the building to, to so that there's no green disc, no green, excuse me, no brown discount on that sale because of the uncertainty of a new owner not knowing how they're going to get to net zero. So it really yeah. become part of the financial equation. It, it really is amazing how literally during a global pandemic of horrific scale and impact that the focus, gratefully and thankfully, has really focused on these issues. Chris, what great, do, great job. If everybody can go ahead and turn on their uh, cameras, we're going to get into Q&A. Um, really, really great discussion. Lots of good questions. I'm going to hit a couple. <clears throat> um, so uh, there was a question from Nick Caton um, for you, Michelle. Um, is your carbon neutrality commitment going to be rolled out in stages, or how, what does that look like for you guys? How are you guys thinking about your your focus on carbon neutrality? Sure. Can you hear me before I start talking? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. I'm like, we already had an issue once. I already, you know, have traumatized the rest of the panel. Um, so for our plan, yes, it's going to be more of a phased rollout. So we're really looking um, at operational control first, where LB is in operational control and where we can impact there. And then once we figure that out, the next phase would really be um, both operational control and indirectly managed, so our industrial tenants. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, really, really uh, appreciate this. Um, uh, I got a question. It was to Michelle. I think I asked this, but I, I'll ask it to, uh, no, sorry, David Katz. How are you guys, and this is to the group, whoever wants to take it, raise your hands. How are you trading off the extra energy for increased ventilation? Because COVID has got us all to focus on indoor air quality and safety. Um, and how is that increased ventilation kind of the trade-off is energy consumption rises? Um, anybody want to speak to that? Maybe Sarah, you can start. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So um, uh, <clears throat> it's it's a tough one is the answer, and the and the answer is occupancy sensing. So no point in doing the increased ventilation for an empty office. Um, so the way Absolutely. that you mitigate that issue is you actually know who's there. Um, you get the the sensors or the whatever you need with the BMS or to figure out who is in your space. Um, and then uh, you're able to give people the ventilation they need per CDC guidance um, without, you know, spending, you know, running your ventilation 24-7 to ventilate right. buildings, which is what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. So occupancy sensors, occupancy sensors, occupancy sensors. 
Can I offer another uh, another comment on that? A different perspective yeah, on please, that? Yeah, please, John. Thank you. Well, you know, this often comes up when someone's going to do the calculations. Hey, we want to run more air. Look what it's going to cost us, right? And they assume that the system's already running efficiently, right? What if they're already bringing in too much outside air and through the use of analytics of fault detection or manual investigation, they can find out, guess what? The damper's been stuck open. If we fix the damper, we're going to solve that and we're going to get what we need to meet our requirements and we're still going to save. So just doing it on paper and presenting it, hey, we want to increase airflow and it's going to cost us as much, please sign off. I think it's a deeper problem than that to look at because oftentimes, about most times, um, many buildings are not already running at a level of efficiency and you can fix that and still achieve your goals and improve your position. I, I will add one yeah. thing, a bit in opposition to that, which is just interesting that we see a lot in New York with a lot of older buildings is build, we have building owners come to us and say, oh, we want to do some healthy building standard certification. We want to put ourselves out there and get all these great things. And we go in and say, you're not even ventilating this building according to code today. So you, you, you want to go get some certification be, to up the ante. You need to make sure you're meeting code because as you know, in the dead of the winter, in the dead of the summer, a lot of buildings shut their outdoor air dampers because it's just cheaper. So there is this, this corollary, which is you have to have a code meeting building before you can start going out and, and, and looking for higher achievements. So sometimes 100%. Mike, and I think that's the point, all three issues, you know, it's not simple. You could be way under, you could be way over. It is as simple as calculating, we want more air, it's gonna cost us money. Right, yeah. Mike, Mike, I think you had a point on this. Yeah, it's a, it's a journey too. This is something to remember. We have a very famous client who installed our air quality monitors in their offices. And as soon as they saw the results, they uninstalled them. That was their solution. They didn't want to know. Red um, marks everywhere, right? That's right. This is a, this is a journey. You're, you're going to find out things that, these are not data points that existed before. We're creating data that never existed before. People looked at buildings as inert brick and mortar. They are yeah. actually living things that sweat. They have heartbeats. They have digestive systems. I mean, you can monitor all this stuff and improve things. And the journey sometimes means that your 25-year-old HVAC system is not doing the job. And sometimes it just means that you need to open a window. I mean, there's there's often, or, and, and to go back to Sarah's point, and I made this point in my presentation, occupancy is the correlation with almost every possible sensor, whether it's energy, whether it's humidity and temperature, whether it is um, air quality, because you put seven people in a room and you close the door, that is seven engines of carbon dioxide. That are 100%. Great point. Um, I got another question um, that was asked uh, about, um, this is uh, from Nick. When we say carbon neutral versus net zero, I know that gets talked about a lot. And because Sarah, you touched on it, I really wanna see if you can kind of add, is it virtually the same for real estate companies? I think you're thinking about it differently. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and it's such a good question because, boy, the, the the jargon is crazy and sometimes contradictory. For example, carbon negative and carbon positive mean the same thing, um, which is crazy making. So typically when, um, when a company says that they are net zero, 
what they typically mean is that they are net zero in operations, which is their scope one, typically their natural gas as a construction company. We also have a lot of like kerosene and coke and other stuff, diesel. Um, and so their natural gas and their electricity that they control is, is their scope two. So the, so the combustibles that you control is your scope one, the electricity you control is your scope two. If they say that they're neutral, they reduce that as much as they can and then basically offset the rest through renewable energy certificates and carbon offsets. So that's what that's what a net zero or net zero in operations typically means. That's what like the ULI group, like that's what that's the goal that they were setting by 2050. So then there are companies that are starting to do what Lendlease has done, which is make a net a scope three, which is the literally everything else. All the energy I don't control, all the transportation, all the corporate emissions, all the flights, all the materials, everything else neutral. Net would be if we bought offsets for all of that. Absolute is no offset. So we have decided that we're going to be absolute zero by 2040. It's a long road till there, although we have roadmaps for how we're going to achieve it. And that's what all of that means. And so companies Absolutely. say that they're negative and positive is because they're going beyond that, usually through offset. Really, really helpful. Um, I do have to throw in one silly question from Brad Malotsky because he wants to know if Code Green is uh, raffling off any of their cool swag because he's in love with your best, and, and we love those uh, funny. But Michelle, you talked, talked about in your how to execute slide about procurement, um, and the question was from uh, Dyne Whittier. Um, does that stand for purchasing racks, or can you talk a little bit about more about procurement from your, from your presentation? Sure. So where I put that in um, is California is a deregulated, or is a regulated market, and so we put our properties into a lottery each year. And so we got selected, um, we've gotten selected over the years for different assets uh, through direct access. And so when I say um, procurement, green procurement, it's really when we're going to procure that energy rather than just procuring it at the lowest rate, we're looking at should we do 100% renewable energy with that or 75% renewable. So one of our large um, sites, uh, Park Place, where we're headquartered out of, we've um, been lucky to get selected. And so when we first did it, we did 75%. That was about two and a half years ago. And now, you know, everything's changed even further. And we just got selected in another um, property there. And so we put 100% renewable energy when we procured that. So we're selecting to pay a premium to be green. So that, that's what I meant by procurement. In, in Fantastic. That, in that slide. Um, another question from Sean Mayer. Um, what do you see as table stakes for critical infrastructure and technology required to enable the use of these systems to collect, you know, energy data and all the data? And maybe if I could start with Mike and then I'll come to John on that. You know, I think um, it's a it's a difficult question because so many of the ways that um, that REITs and commercial real estate companies and corporations with portfolios are being judged are varied standards. So the, there's an industry out there that's developed, and I've written a, quite a bit about this lately, but that's developed their own pro, you know, very um, proprietary methodologies for rating somebody's performance. Yeah. And the existing regulators put to standardize that because they all wanna claim they have the secret sauce, right? It's, a, it's an industry now that makes a billion plus dollars a year. That's not helpful. Um, so I think what you need to do, because most of the surveys that end up rating you um, are kind of narrative answers to these long lists of questions, you need to figure out what can you install 
that will provide a useful data point that cannot be challenged, that's empirical, on which you can hang your answer about how, how well do you play, treat your customers or employees or how much opportunity for feedback is there. Those are kind of things that we can now produce data on, which previously wasn't true. And, and to some extent, the carbon footprint part of it is the, it's the great challenge from an existential standpoint, but it's the easier data to derive because it's about consumption. Um, and it's about, then then there's the secondary stuff like, you, you know, we have one where we built a better mousetrap, literally, um, which has an occupancy sensor so that the pest control companies in Europe are not driving around constantly checking traps and spewing exhaust into the air. So that's kind of one of those, I, I think that would be a category two impact, but ultimately those are the kind of things that you need data to back up your claim. And that's the kick table stake, I think. John, what are yeah. your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, I'll answer the question a little differently. Instead, at table stakes, I'd say what's the most essential starting point? It's interval meter data. Um, but how you get that goes right back to Mike's, Mike's point that that may be five different methods for a single building, a web service feed from a utility, a smart meter, a sub meter, um, a pulse meter, et cetera. But I mean, it really starts there. I think that's the most uh, you know, effective first step organizations need to have access to is interval meter data because from that, as Mike said, now you can quickly convert with software to uh, greenhouse gas equivalents, uh, social um, metrics of that, you know, equivalent number of cars driven, miles, trees planted, et cetera. That's where I would say people should focus on starting. Absolutely, we're out of time. Let me turn it back to Chuck. Thank you, everybody, and to Realcom for your participation. Great discussion. Very good. Thank you, Brenna, and and thanks to all of the panelists for your your valuable contributions. I think to today's session, one of the most informative webinars. I think uh, people might be able to write a white paper on what they just heard today. So I think we capture a lot for our live audience and those who are watching. This is a recording. Be sure to go to Realcom.com to register for the third installment of our Smart Building Bootcamp series titled Smart Building Case Studies. That's one week from today on February the 3rd. Wish everyone a great afternoon and uh, be well. Thank you so much. Great Thank job, you. appreciate it. Thanks, Brenda. Bye-bye. Thank you.